We continue today a sermon series on faith and technology in the wake of the pandemic as the pandemic continues, but we're beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel in forms like this, being able to gather for worship. It seems a great time to look at how people of faith might respond to technology, how we might interact with technology and look at technology today. So here for the fourth sermon in this series, hear this text from the prophet Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 through 22, Isaiah 44, 6 through 22, and listen for God's word to us this morning. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and set it forth before me. Who has announced from of old the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Do not fear or be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a god or cast an image that can do no good? Look, it's all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans, too, are merely human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand up. They shall be terrified. They shall all be put to shame. The blacksmith fashions it and works it over the coal, shaping it with hammers and forging it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a stylus and fashions it with planes and marks it with a compass. He makes it in human form with human beauty to be set up in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or chooses a holm tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it can be used as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Then he makes a god and worships it, makes it a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he roasts meat and eats it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I can feel the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, an idol, bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut so that they cannot see, and their minds as well so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. Now shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Loving God, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of each one of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, shortly before our daughter Lucy was born, Jill and I took a week-long retreat in Abiquí, or Abiquí, New Mexico. This is near Santa Fe, and there's a fabulous retreat center there, a Presbyterian camp and conference center at Ghost Ranch. If you've never been there, I strongly recommend it. We got to take hikes during the day and see the beautiful landscape that inspired the artist Georgia O'Keeffe, and you could see why the natural landscape would inspire the eye and mind of an artist. It was gorgeous. There were chapel services held each day, and there was also plenty of time to walk and simply to enjoy nature and to pray, and there were also folk art classes that were offered. I signed up for one on wood carving. So at the beginning of this week, we were each given a log of cottonwood, and along with a local artisan to guide us and images that we could look at to inspire us and some simple hand carving tools, we began carving these logs into various items. I thought I would make my log that was long and slender into a bird, and because it was slender, I thought I'll go for a cattle egret. And this is a little uh, daunting to present this now, given that we have a professional sculptor and an incredible one in Chris Sladoff in our midst. But friends, here before your eyes is the decided work of a novice. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. This is supposed to be a cattle egret. I know the legs are a little thick and the beak isn't quite right and the proportions aren't exactly right, but I have great affection for this carving of wood, in part because it reminds me of an incredible week that Jill and I were able to spend in a beautiful part of creation where I certainly felt close to God, close to her, close to creation. It was a wonderful time and it was a, a great meditative focusing activity to carve. I could see why Chris Sladoff on these trips we would take to serve at the Casa Orphanage would be molding with clay the whole time we went. It's a wonderful activity. And I look at this today and look back on that time fondly. But were I to take this and to bow down to it, were I to say, this is the source of my salvation, or were I to look to this for meaning and direction in my life, I feel quite confident all of you would say, Matt, that's crazy. This is just the work of your hands. Well, there's another item, one crafted this time by aluminum, with circuitry, with plastic, with metal, and with glass. And I also have affection for this item. This, friends, is an iPad 2. Remember those? This is back in 2011. This was made, and one of the reasons I like it is that Kristen Barahama had given me an Apple gift card, and I used the funds from that in part to buy this. So when I use it, I think of Kristen, I think of this church, and I like that. It's got my daily prayer, Presbyterian daily prayer app on it, so I can pull up scripture and prayers anytime I like. It's got some history. I've used it for now some 10 years in ministry. And it's big enough that I can still see it, even though my eyes are not what they once were. Now, it's got its weaknesses. Heaven forbid I ever try to browse the internet because it keeps crashing. 
I can't replace the battery even though it only lasts about 30 or 40 minutes these days because that's really difficult to do and Apple, given its fiercely proprietary nature, won't let me throw a new operating system on this device. But even with all those shortcomings, I still have affection for it. But for me to say this is my source of strength. This is an item that I will let guide me. This is my God would be crazy. You all would say, were I to do that, this is the work of your hands, nothing more. Don't put more on it than it can hold. Well, nobody I know would lift up this iPad, particularly not the iPad 2, and say, this is a God. And yet, Part of Apple's appeal has been the practically religious devotion it has sought and received. My daughter, Lucy, brought home the book by Scott Galloway entitled The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And of course, I had to take a look at that book. And in it, Galloway notes how Apple, quote, mimics religion with its own belief system, objects of veneration, cult, following. It has its own belief system, objects of veneration, cult following, and a Christ figure. You know who I'm talking about in Steve Jobs, right? Galloway writes of how the elegance of Apple devices was part of their appeal as that elegance touches on an instinctive human desire to transcend the human condition and feel closer to the stuff of God. He writes, for millennia, we've knelt in churches, mosques, and temples, looked around and thought there's no way human hands could have created these objects of veneration before us. They seem beyond that. There is no way mere humans could have created this alchemy of sound, art, and architecture without divine inspiration. I'm taken out of the ordinary world. This must be where God lives. This must be where God lives. Apple devices are designed to evoke that, Galloway argues, and yet this iPad, like my novice wood carving, get right down to it, is just the work of our hands. If we want transcendence, salvation, the stuff of heaven, a savior, for that we need to look beyond this and this and look to the one who first crafted human hands like yours and mine in the first place. We need to know the source, guide, and goal of all creation, the one who no image could ever hope to capture. Well, in today's passage from Isaiah, God presents through the pen of the prophet an extended satire on the notion of venerating the work of our hands. The passage begins with the bold assertion as to who truly has the power to rule creation, to strengthen a people, and to save. We read, the Lord, the King of Israel, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other God. There is no other God. Who is like me? Let them come forward. There is no other rock. I know not one. And then it is like the prophet calls forth people to defend themselves in a courtroom. And the first one called forward is a something forged of iron. And God, the divine lawyer or cross-examiner, says this forgery of iron is a God. Look at it. A blacksmith hammered this out. And when that blacksmith grew tired, he needed rest. 
when he needed water. When he grew thirsty, he needed water. This was crafted by human hands, and you look to this as a god. Well, then, also called forth to defend itself is a carving of wood. And this time, God says, look at this carving of wood. It was made from cedar or from oak, and the carpenter who made it had it in mind and then crafted it with their hands and put it in a temple. But that same carpenter might have burned some of that same tree that was used to carve this piece and use that for warmth. And yet they didn't somehow recognize that part of this that warmed them, that was burned for fuel, that the other part was lifted up as some idol with incredible strength or believed to be a god. This is just the work of someone's hands. The divine cross-examiner, the divine prosecutor would say this craft of human hands can't hold the weight of being a god. Sure, the carving may be beautifully rendered. It might evoke inspiration to others. You might look at it and think of the hands behind all of creation, the God who made each one of us and who inspires the artist, who sends the muse to them. But to call that object a God, that's blindness. Then God says to all those in the courtroom, according to Isaiah 44, I formed you. Like wood, I fashioned you. Or like iron, I forged you, shaped you like a blacksmith would. I've crafted you for my purposes so that you might be a blessing in the world, so that you might further God's ways of justice and peace. You might love God and neighbor. I have crafted you. So know that I alone am God, not this piece a human has crafted from a tree or from iron. Don't mistake those for the real thing. It is an ancient temptation we read about in Isaiah to take something we make and assign to it more power than it actually possesses. People in ancient times did this with carvings of wood and iron. People in modern times can do that with things like money or cars, or technology. But it's the same temptation, placing on the work of our hands more weight than it can bear. I remember some 20 years ago sitting down with a friend for lunch one day. This was out in Connecticut. And we were talking about some of the challenges that face the environment at that time. We talked about pollutants in the air, like nitrous oxide and greenhouse gases. We spoke of pollutants in the water, like plastics and other toxins. And we also spoke about non-biodegradable trash filling up the earth. And this friend said to me, Matt, you know, I am a big believer in technology. I am a big believer that all of those problems will be solved by human ingenuity, that we will come up with technology to address each one of those. And I was struck by that confidence in technology. Now, don't get me wrong. There are wonderful ways technology can undo particularly environmental issues. Some of you may recall that the Presbytery of San Gabriel has developed a partnership with communities in Ayacucho, Peru, 
communities that lacked safe drinking water, and our presbytery, together with churches and other people of faith in that area, partnered so that the ability to make and then ultimately maintain water purification systems could be available to these marginalized communities if they wanted it, and that way they could have safer drinking water. That kind of technology was shared in the name of Christ in partnership, And technology can be a great gift. It is pretty cool that there was a Mars rover put on that planet. Several of us watched as that took place. But to imagine that technology will somehow solve all the problems that human beings create, to imagine that it will solve the environmental crisis, I think is putting more weight on it than it can hope to bear. That confidence this individual expressed over lunch that technology could and would save us, save the earth, save us who dwell upon the earth, that seemed to me then and still does today as well about as crazy as looking to this or this for salvation. Writing in the early 1990s on the personal computer revolution, as that was accelerating, Neil Postman wrote of a troubling relationship he saw our society developing with technology. We were, Postman argued, no longer discussing the trade-offs surrounding new technologies, balancing the new efficiencies against the new problems introduced. We were no longer asking, hey, if we can do this new thing with technology, should we? Is it good to do? If we can clone, should we? If we can fight wars with drones, should we? Postman argued that in his time, people tended to assume if it's high-tech, it was good, or worse, it was inevitable, inexorable. That kind of culture Postman described as technopoly, one where technology and not the people collectively deciding ruled the day. As Christians, while we might welcome a new technology if it furthers God's good purposes in the world, we would want to resist technopoly, wouldn't we? We'd want to resist that, for we believe there is a God who rules the day. There's a God who rules the day, who rules heaven and earth, the one true God, the one rock and redeemer who we know personally in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we want to resist technopoly because we believe God and only God has the power to save. Now, please don't get me wrong. Over these last 16 months especially, I have found myself often being grateful for technology that allowed us to connect over the pandemic months. I've been delighted to be able to use things like teleconferencing and live streaming that's allowed us to worship together, to gather together, to hold classes to connect and see one another face to face or talk to one another, even to pray together each day. I've given thanks often for those technologies. They're allowing some of you to join on the live streaming right now, and I am thrilled for that. But I do pray going forward, now that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic, that we learn the right lessons about technology of these last 16 months, that we receive it as a useful tool when it is that and resist it when it takes us in a direction we don't want to go. That is, we put as a criteria for technology 
Does this allow us to fulfill our mission? Does this allow us to more faithfully love and serve God? Or does it distract us from that mission? Does it direct us somewhere we don't want to go? That is, we continue to make God and God's revealed word to us, that word revealed first and foremost in Jesus Christ, let that be our guide and then ask the question of technology. Will this help us in that or hurt us in that? Mindful always of unintended consequences. For we believe we have. We have a God and Redeemer. We have a power to direct us. We have a source, guide, and goal of all that exists, the very one who made the wood out of which this was crafted. And that, not God, not any work of human hands, is our strength and guide. Today's July 4th a day when people around the country recall the founding of this nation back in 1776. We watch fireworks as we did in Altadena just last Friday night. And we consider what our hopes and dreams, what our prayers might be for our nation. Here is at least one hope and prayer I have for my country this day, this July 4th. Just as I hope and pray individuals and churches resist the lure of technopoly, so I pray the same for my country. I pray the collective decision-making of the people guided by values and concern for the greater good would guide us and not the appeal, any new technology or the power of companies that employ new technologies might offer. May God be our source, our strength, and our guide. So friends, as we engage now as Christians with a world still in the midst of pandemic, but where a post-pandemic world is breaking in, may we hold technology for what it is, the work of our hands. And may we hold God for what God is, the power over all creation and the one who has drawn near to us to save us in Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have eternal life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.